Welcome to the Gamers Tavern, episode 31. We have guests Shane Hensley and Brendan Gitzimer with us as we talk about the state of the gaming industry. And as you can tell, my voice is completely shot from Comic Palooza this past weekend. I'd like to say a brilliant thank you to everyone involved at the con and how awesome it was to meet some of you fans out there, uh, both old and new. So I hope you enjoy the show. This is going to be quick and there's no outro, so please see the show notes for any disclaimers. So, that said, you bar, drink, table, corner, sponsors. DriveThruRPG is the place to go to purchase digital copies of your favorite games. Dungeons & Dragons, Shadowrun, World of Darkness, Savage Worlds, Numenera, Fate, and so many more. Do you long for the feel of actual paper in your hands? Well, they sell physical products too. Just go to GamersTavern.org and click on the link in the show notes to find your favorite games and support the podcast with every purchase. Hello and welcome to episode 31 of the Gamers Tavern podcast. I'm Ross Watson, your host. And I'm Daryl Mott Jr. And tonight we have with us a couple of great guests. We have Mr. Shane Hensley. Hi. And Brandon Gensimer. Hey there. Uh, tonight we are going to do um, kind of an, an inaugural episode that we hope to do every year. It's going to be called State of the RPG Industry for 2014. Daryl came up with this as, a, as an idea. I think it's a really good idea. Um, and we're going to start, as always, with our gaming character sheet, which is basically just finding out from our guests who they are, where they're known in the industry, and where they might be found on the interwebs. Um, Brandon, you're, you've done this before, so let's, uh, let's throw you in the fire first. What is your gaming character sheet? Uh, my gaming character sheet obviously, obviously has to start as the, uh, game master for the, uh, Shadowrun actual play here on Gamers Tavern. I'm also doing a, uh, independent rewrite of Shadowrun 5th edition, which hopefully is going to be coming out within the next few weeks. Maybe, sorty. Maybe. Doesn't know. Uh, that, that depends on a lot of things, but, uh, now that's as an well- entirely yeah. unofficial. Oh, right? yeah. That's, yeah. okay. Disclaimer, that is 100% unofficial, fan created. I am doing this as an individual exercise. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> all, all everything is owned by Tops, etc. I've also worked with, uh, many video game publishers, such as, uh, Blizzard Activision, uh, Tryon Worlds, Electronic Arts, and all the game dev houses they're under. And uh, right now I'm just doing uh, freelance stuff. My most recent work is going to be found in Malifaux through the Breach, uh, Assault on Innocence. Uh, yeah, the first Penny Dreadful is what it's called. And it's I called uh, In Defense of Innocence. But you were really close. Yeah, I, it, it, it's changed <laughs> on me. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Happens from time to time, especially when you have me as a developer. Thank you, Brandon. And where can we find you on the interwebs? Uh, you can find me on the interwebs. Uh, right now, I just have a Twitch channel. It's going to be uh, twitch.tv slash ympulse101, impulse101. All right. Um, and are you an elf? No. Okay. <laughs> I'm an orc. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And Mr. Shane Hensley, what is your gaming character sheet like? Now, of course, it's a Savage Worlds character sheet. That's right. It's a Savage Worlds character sheet. We had to actually invent the D14 just for my smarts. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I I can't back that up at all. Okay, so I guess I'm best known for Savage Worlds and Deadlands, but I've done a lot of other stuff. I used to freelance for every company under the sun just about back in the day. I owned a game store, and I've done uh, a lot of different projects from card games, miniatures games, RPGs, video games, board games, everything you can imagine. 
And I've served as an executive producer on a couple of large MMOs. Mostly I'm an MMO guy on the video game side of things. And now we're, are we going to be adding executive television producer to your credits soon? <laughs> well, how about co-producer? Ah, Awesome. Congratulations yeah, on that. i to earn before I can get the exec producer title. Absolutely. Congratulations on that. That is a fantastic announcement. In case people don't know, as listeners, it's been recently mentioned on uh, as an Xbox series, they're going to make a television series based on Deadlands, the RPG. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So Xbox has a new division called Xbox Originals. Right. And they're doing television shows. I guess you call them television shows like uh, Halo and uh, Warren Ellis's Winter World. And uh, luckily for me, Deadlands is one of those shows in development. That is just amazing. That That is amazing news. It is brand new to me. That is awesome. We literally found this out the day after we invited Shane onto the show. So that was a nice little bonus for us to get that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, now, this is actually the first podcast I've done since then, so fire ooh. away. Scoop. We're getting scoop. Awesome. <laughs> now, you know, part of the reason why I wanted to make sure Shane was on the show with us tonight for State of the Industry, uh, although he would probably never say it, I certainly believe Shane is one of the most influential and important people in our industry uh, due to his position as the guy in charge of Savage Worlds uh, through Pinnacle because so many – game settings and gamers and things are tied into Savage Worlds. It's, it's, it's one of the largest games systems that isn't, say, Dungeons and Dragons. It's, it's up there. It's like one of those really well known, really well uh, widespread systems. And on top of that, like we had a, a panel at ChupacabraCon with, uh, unfortunately, the late Aaron Alston. And, uh, we were talking about world building and so forth. And every time we would start talking about role playing games, uh, Shane, your name was mentioned. <laughs> hey, that's was, nice to hear. It was funny. It was, uh, we, we just kept talking about it. Like, oh, yeah, and then you should always talk to Shane Hensley because he's awesome. Uh, it was like you were in the room, but you weren't actually in the room. Ask Ed Wetterman about it sometime. <laughs> I'm sure he'll give you a great rundown on how it went. I, I hope it was mostly positive. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, you know, I'm, I'm definitely uh, a fan. I'm, I am a, a, a Hensleyite. Uh, so if you see Mr. Hensley at any gaming convention, absolutely stop by and talk to him because he is a super cool guy. And, you know, he's, he's kind of one of our, our hidden gems, I would say. I mean, you know, there's the, the Gary Gygax, there's the Larry Elmore. In probably 10, maybe 20 years from now, I imagine we'll also be putting Shane Hensley in that list because he is, he is a luminary of our industry. That's some nice company you've put me in. <laughs> I'll try to deserve it. Well, thank you for, for being with us tonight, Shane. We really appreciate it. Sure. Okay, so we've uh, got our gaming character sheets out of the way. Um, let's talk about what we've been playing lately. Brandon, what have you been playing lately? Uh, lately, I've been playing a whole lot of Shadowrun and uh, Shadowrun 5. I've also been doing the uh, Pathfinder slash uh, D&D 3.5 Roll20 kind of hybrid homebrew kind of setting that uh, this one GM has created. It's a rather interesting system. I've talked with him a lot about it. But pretty much D&D and uh, Shadowrun as far as the board games, or excuse me, as tabletop is concerned. I've been playing a lot of uh, Dark Souls 2 and also a brand new game that came out is uh, Trials of Evolution. I've been playing those two games a whole lot recently. All right. And Trials is a racing game, right? It's a it's a single-player time trial. You're It's hard to explain in a word, in a sentence, but you're it's basically a time trials game. You are okay. racing against yourself trying to get to the end of the level. And getting to the end of the level is actually one of the most difficult parts about it, which is fun. <laughs> it is mo- it is motorcycle platforming, 
At his best. May I suggest for your Twitch channel, Big Rigs Over the Road Racing? <laughs> <laughs> the I worst. only have one monitor, sir. I couldn't break it out of frustration. <laughs> <laughs> All right. If we bleep out the game that shall not be named, we need to start bleeping out that one for video games. Mr. Hensley, what have you been playing lately? Okay, let's let's do Shane, okay? <laughs> All right, Shane. Um, Shane. So board game-wise, I've been very enamored with Lords of Waterdeep since last summer. I think that's just one of the best games our industry has seen in a long time. In, a, in a field with a lot of great games. Yeah, so I'm loving that. Um, RPG-wise, and I, I play everything. I don't just play our games. But lately, it has been a fair amount of Savage Worlds. I ran a uh, a really cool... Like, I can say it's cool because it wasn't the stuff I did that was so cool. Uh, Weird Wars Rome adventure. And it was kind of one of those things where you just set it up and then let the players do whatever they want. And my, my group consisted of guys like Tim Brown, who created Dark Sun, and John Wick, who was one of the L5R visionaries in, uh, in Houses of the Blooded and all the other stuff he does, plus uh, three or four other guys who were just excellent role players, really good at what they were doing. And I just got to kind of sit back and watch in amazement as they ran with the story and, and, and just did some you know amazing things. It was just fantastic. And was then this I, ran, a- uh, I ran... Uh, I have a... A fairly notorious Deadlands adventure that I run for people who are up for some abuse. And I I ran that at a convention (laughs) last week for a mixed group of guys and gals. And I think I scared the pee out of some of the gals. It was uh, was good. (laughs) It was brutal. Now this uh, Weird Wars Room, was that also at a convention? No, that was here at my house. The other one was at a convention. Wow. So all those guys live around your, your neck of the woods. Uh, John Wick lives in about an hour away from me in Phoenix, and Tim Brown lives up in Vegas, and we're collaborating on several projects, uh, one of which Mr. Watson has written for. <laughs> so uh, we get together about once a month or so at this point. Can we, can we talk a little bit about uh, the, the Lost Parsec, is what it's called? Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see that happen. I wrote an adventure for it. Uh, one of the first... Like, for real adventures. I, I've been a developer a long time, but I haven't, like, put my hand to a lot of adventures, and Shane asked me to write one for really? Lost Parsec. So I channeled the old-school Star Frontiers feel into it, and I think it turned out really well. <laughs> sure did, and that's that's exactly what the Last Parsec is about. It, it, in our opinion, it's a spiritual successor to Star Frontiers, or at least a, that, that feeling and, and fun that we had with Star Frontiers all those years ago. That's kind of what we're back into, the planetary exploration. It's not so much... Starfleet battles or Star Wars or anything that it really is, you know, you're dropped on an alien planet and now discover what's weird and cool there. And that's what we've been focusing on. And uh, my adventure is called the Enigma Equation. Yeah. If you want to look for it, uh, that's what it's called. Okay. Daryl, what have you been playing lately? Uh, I haven't had much of a chance to play much stuff because I'm playing catch up on editing at this point in time. I did manage to squeeze in a Settlers of Catan game the other day. And Woo-hoo! so wood for sheep. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what I've been playing lately, I've been playing um, Arduin Bloody Arduin, which is the newest version of the classic system for uh, Arduin Eternal. Cool. Or, so, I should say the Arduin Grimoire. My bad. Uh, which is a setting that's been around for about 40 years. Uh, my good friend, Monty St. John, who uh, is part of a company called Emperor's Choice Games, um, he is uh, kind of the guy behind that, and it is really interesting and exciting to play in this classic setting. Uh, I'm having a great time. I'm playing a Thrun, which is a big, four-armed, blue-skinned guy. I'm a paladin of the god of fate, which is kind of bizarre, but awesome at the same time. 
And we're just exploring all kinds of crazy Thundar the Barbarian style, uh, savagery, sorcery, and super science, uh, in that game. So loving it. You are a man after my own heart. <laughs> <laughs> I have, uh, the, the Thundar collection right here on my desk, right next to Pirates of Darkwater. Demon dogs! <laughs> Lords of light! <laughs> All right. Uh, I've been also playing uh, the Avengers game, Next Generation. We just wrapped up our big battle against Mordred in the Dark Hold, and we restored, dark, uh, we restored New York from its medieval transformation. Sweet! And uh, Valkyrie 2 is now an official Avenger in that game, so... And lastly, uh, I got interested in uh, some MMOs. I've been playing Star Trek Online way too much. <laughs> uh, they had a uh, uh, double XP weekend recently, and I said, what the hell? And now I'm level 50 and exploring the endgame content. Wow, that's fast. <laughs> that uh, double XP weekend, man, it just, I, I went right on through, and uh, it is a really fun MMO. Uh, so if you guys are looking for me on, uh, on Star Trek Online, I am in the Echelon Division fleet. So the next seg- uh, next segment of our show is called Tavern Tales, and we just ask you to give us a memorable die roll from a game. It doesn't have to be a die roll. It can be a card flip. It can be whatever you want. But uh, <laughs> why don't we start with, uh, with Shane? What's yeah, I got a good one. All right. Okay. So back in college, which was, you know, just last year for me, we were playing Cyber – oh, I can't remember what it was called uh, – the spell law, ICE spell law system, they had oh. a cyber setting. What was that yeah, called? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was uh, cyberspace. Cyberspace. Is that it? Yeah, I guess yeah. so. So John Hoppler, who is uh, one of the lead designers at Cryptic and worked on the Star Trek game you were just talking about, was running it. And he decided we were going to, after several adventures doing kind of shadow runny kind of stuff, we wound up in basically the running man. My <laughs> character. Not the dance move, but the movie. Right, right, the movie. So uh, my character was this big black dude called uh, the Duca NY, you know, kind of based off the the character from Escape from New York. That's that played by Isaac Hayes? Played by <laughs> Isaac Hayes, exactly. So I did my best to channel Isaac Hayes when I played him. But uh, we were still of middling experience, and um, we were playing in this huge televised battle. And if we won, we got... I don't remember exactly what, but it was everything we had been working for in this campaign. So it was it was a big deal to us, you know, in real life. So it was very cool. But all the combatants were real badasses. I mean, they were just incredibly tough to beat. We had to gang up on them to beat them and everything. And this one guy that I had to fight was a gunslinger. And he was way better than me, and he was way faster, and I didn't have a chance. But we had pulled off a couple of successes, and the ratings were through the roof. Everybody was watching. And I couldn't use my team. This was a one-on-one duel. And I was a short-range, sawed-off shotgun kind of guy. So we uh, I don't remember exactly how initiative went, but somehow I got lucky and went first. And, and I think this is the right die roll. I might have my, my numbers backwards, but I basically rolled a double zero on the dice. And I heart shot this gunslinger on national TV, prime time, millions <laughs> nice. of people watching. And everybody was just quiet. I mean, the, the players were quiet. The GM says, you know, the audience is dead, silent, right? And then all of a sudden it's, do, 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 do. And man, <laughs> I will never forget that moment for as long as I live. That was awesome. One little die roll. That is very cool. Very, very cool. Cool segment. I like that. Brandon, what's your most memorable die roll? 
Uh, this one is going to come out of uh, Tales of the Level 3. Um, it was out of the D20 system game that I was recently in. Uh, one of our characters, the mage, had the great idea that he was going to just blow all of his spells on the first encounter of the day, and he did so. It was glorious. Uh, second encounter, he wait, got... Wait, wait, wait. Wait, would you say that's kind of like spending all your edge in the first battle of the game? Something similar to that, yeah. <laughs> Something you have all sorts of experience in, I'm sure. Oh, yes. Listen <laughs> listen to our game table episodes for more on that. <laughs> this mage who is a elf, I'm not sure if he's a sorcerer or a wizard because he hasn't told us yet, but this little elf with like eight strength gets jumped on by a bear because we were in the forest doing something silly. I forget what it was. My character thought it was ridiculous, but, you know, such is the life in D&D. He gets jumped on by a bear, gets a series of critical successes that I can only explain as the literal hand of God. This bear comes up and jumps on him, attempts to melee or grapple him. This mage then, through the series of amazing die rolls, turns around, puts the bear into a hammerlock. <laughs> <laughs> Puts it up against a tree, then wraps his arm around it with another critical success. I don't know how this happens. <laughs> and chokes the bear out. Wow. <laughs> this this elf with eight strength chokes a bear out. <laughs> lets him go, and then looks to the rest of the group and says, So, what are the rest of you doing for the rest of the day? <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's awesome. And remember, this is a level three character. Wow. <laughs> Which, Oosh. yes, the the insane things that happen. But yes, that's my story of a crazy die roll in recent memory. <laughs> you know, we don't normally do this for ourselves, but I'm I'm going to jump in really quick with a uh, a tavern tale. But it's not a dice tavern tale. It's actually about a card flip. Uh, one of the cool things with Savage Worlds is they have a deck of special cards that you can hand out that give you cool abilities. Uh, during the game, it's it's kind of an extra opportunity to do something awesome based specifically on what is written on the card. I had been uh, playing uh, Shintar with uh, Sean Patrick Fannin at Genghis Khan this year, and uh, I was playing my uh, my paladin, <laughs> and I'd been given a card called uh, Noble Sacrifice, which says that if you are adjacent to someone else, you can take the hit. Basically, any damage is dealt to them is instead dealt to you. And I said, okay, this is pretty cool. Uh, well, as... You know, convention games are want to do. It ended up being almost entirely a big battle for start to finish, right? Uh, so for, you know, most of the night, I am running around right next to somebody as often as possible, just waiting, just waiting for that <laughs> chance to flip that card over. And wouldn't you know it, it's one of those nights when the dice are super hot and everybody's just, we're just kind of face rolling all the bad guys and we're just, you know, rocking right, right through to the final confrontation. And, you know, we get to the end, and there's this big sort of source of evil, which is actually from the Accursed setting, that's uh, sort of flowing into Shintar. And uh, this was kind of awesome, because I was actually playing with Sean. Sean was not the GM. He was actually another player at the table. Um, so we had the creator of Shintar, Sean, and the creator of Accursed, me, in the game together, but as players, not as GMs. <laughs> So, uh, so Sean says, I'm going to sacrifice myself. I'm calling upon my, my god, the, the silver unicorn, to channel her power through me and use my soul to close this portal. And he says, all right. So I die, and then this happens. I say, wait a second. Wait, wait, wait. I'm adjacent to you. <laughs> Threw down the card. <laughs> Threw down the card, noble sacrifice. I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. 
<laughs> and uh, wouldn't you know, another player had a card where he could sort of spread, I forget the name of the card, but it, it sort of allowed him to spread the effect around. So nobody died, uh, <laughs> actually. Uh, we all took some damage. I passed out for a couple of days, my character did, but uh, it was just a beautiful take that moment at the very end of the game for me to throw down that card and be like, no, you don't. <laughs> That's so cool. Sounds like the Hollywood focus test came in and said, no, we really don't want this guy to die. We want that guy to die. And then they <laughs> tried that and they're like, nah, no, nah, we don't want anybody to die. We want a happy ending. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's, that's what happens when those cards come into play is they allow you to do some really fun, uh, some really fun moments in the game. So there you cool. go. Cool. All right. So let's jump into the meat of tonight's discussion, which is going to be about the state of the role playing game industry in 2014. I'm going to throw this question out to the guests. Um, and Daryl, of course, you're more than welcome to jump in. Mm -hmm. Uh, how are RPGs doing right now? Awesome. Show over. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Now, I really think that the role playing game industry is growing. Gaming in general is growing a lot right now. Thanks to things like tabletop, uh, and all the other web series that are going on. It's about to get a big boost in, uh, I don't know how long away because no one's made any announcements about production, but uh, the Deadlands TV show is definitely going to help a lot. All these other things are going through and more and more standard people, action, standard action, um, the gamer, uh, gamers, darkness rising and all those D and D showing up on mainstream broadcast television networks, community, community, big bang theory, it crowd. And it's becoming less and less of the stigma that it used to be, and a lot more people are joining the hobby. And the tabletop gaming industry, according to ICV2, over the and this is overall including board games and CCGs and everything else, has grown by double-digit percentages every quarter for the last five years in terms of market share. That's not bad. Brandon, Shane, anybody want to talk about how RPGs are doing now? Yeah, I'll jump in. I think, uh, first off, ICV2 is, a, is an awesome site. I don't mean to disparage it, but their numbers are, are they Weird. have never reflected us, for example. And, uh, and I know what our growth is, and I know what many of my peers are doing, and they don't show up there either. So they're, they're a weird sampling of stuff. I'm not sure how they get their sampling. It's, but, a, uh, it's even, a poll that they send out to independent game sellers. So basically yeah. game store. So it doesn't account things like Amazon, Barnes and Noble, stuff like right. that. Even at the height of the original classic Deadlands, we just did not find ourselves registering on uh, some of those charts, even when uh, we were doing three and four and sometimes 10 times what some of our peers were on those charts. So, so those are pretty weird. So I take them with a grain of salt, but you know, I find them valuable. I still look at them myself. And, and for the same reason you just said, Daryl, that, you know, they show kind of what overall growth relative to the other categories, which I assume have the same representation are. Though I imagine board games get a little more even coverage. Because what I'm going to say about RPGs is that you know, our growth is exponential right now, and it's really strong and it's really good. But what we're seeing, or what I think, is that there's more fracturing of the player base than ever before, but in a positive way, unlike the negative way of maybe five, ten years ago. So I think five, ten years ago, maybe even as, as soon as two or three years ago, you were a D&D guy, a D20 guy, a Pathfinder guy, a GURPS guy, a Rifts guy, you know, maybe a Savage Worlds guy at that point, and, and, and you didn't stray outside of your line very much. But I think what's going on with all the new Kickstarter projects that are coming out of the woodwork that it's becoming the norm to try lots of different systems. 
And as they do so, people are more willing to try you know, some of the bigger systems like Savage Worlds or GURPS or, or whatever. And they're a little less resistant to doing that, or I guess Fate these days too. So they're a little less resistant to try new things because it's becoming the norm to try everything. That's, that's my current theory that I'm working off of. But we're also seeing our PDF sales have, have grown since, I don't know, when we started selling them. It was a long time ago, long before most people did. But now we're seeing a real resurgence with print, too, where a lot of people want print books again and print products even of our PDFs. So we're working to make that happen. But for us, the, the growth is, is just fantastic. So I have to say that the state of the RPG industry is very strong from our point of view. My feeling is that the state of the RPG industry is reflective of a greater cultural shift, at least in North America, uh, that is becoming more accepting of the quote-unquote nerd or geek culture on the whole. Up until, you know, maybe three, four years ago, uh, unless you were part of that community that was into video games, into tabletop RPGs, into, into board games even, unless you were part of that group, you were just kind of shunted off on the fringes of society. Now, though, it's become more socially acceptable to communicate those things to, to quote, other people. And it's become something that you can discuss around the proverbial water cooler with your coworkers, as opposed to just talking about, you know, the sports game from last night. Uh, I think that is the reason why tabletop RPGing is, is growing the way that it is, is because it is becoming more socially accessible and more... In some cases, even uh, socially, uh, words escape me, but it's becoming a good thing. <clears throat> yes, <laughs> I had a proper word for that, but yes, it's becoming it's becoming something that people as a whole are promoting as a positive as opposed to a negative, and I think that that's an indicative across all recreational outlets for this for the creative types. I mean, one of our bigger news sources for at least for D&D news or Pathfinder news seems to be Forbes for God's sake. They had the best coverage from PAX East over D&D Next and Tyranny of the Dragons. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Much RPGs. Yes. Such growth. <laughs> I'd say the biggest challenge though is that there's still no central marketing uh, resource for you to get the word out there and especially since Facebook changed the way that uh, it reposts your articles that it's definitely becoming even harder to get the word out that, you know, you've got a new product or a new line or something like that. When we did Deadlands Noir, the Kickstarter, uh, word got around very easily. By the time we got to Rome and especially now, we're finding it much harder to get the word out. There are million dollar Kickstarters out there that I've never heard of, which just blows my mind because I, consider myself fairly well informed oh yeah well i think kickstarter has changed the market the, the market space so much um like for example back in 2011 which is not that far away um but back in 2011 i would have said that there are three tiers in the rpg industry there's the top tier which was paizo and watsi there's the second tier which is folks like fantasy flight games green ronin uh you know i guess there's savage rolls in there too and then there was the, the everybody else <laughs> was kind of below that, right? And, and I, I feel that was fairly accurate like three years ago. But if you're looking at nowadays, you've got Kickstarters like Fate Core, which was just incredibly successful. You've got just all kinds of stuff that's out there in the marketplace right now that is uh, – it's, it's almost impossible for me to say like exactly what is in what tier. Now, correct me if yep. I'm wrong, but 
uh, Evil Hat, the company that makes Fate, it's still pretty much kind of like a one man working out of his garage sort of operation, isn't it? Well, it is, but at the same time, I don't think you can ignore the success of the Kickstarter. Exactly. The Kickstarter yeah. and after the Kickstarter. Kickstarter has been long gone and it's still one of the top selling games on like drive-thru and everywhere else. And well, like he, he used to publish his, uh, his sales figures and like three years ago, I think he was saying lifetime sales for Spirit of the Century was 5,000. I'm paraphrasing, but you know, if, if, if that was true, 5,000 sales of Spirit of the Century, that's respectable, but it's not huge. After the Kickstarter, though, I would imagine that number is, you know, Fate Core has probably reached many more people than 5,000. I wouldn't be surprised if it was 25,000 or even, say, 50,000 in terms of sales. Because you got to sell it, you're, you're selling it not just the, the backers, but you're selling it to, you know, stores. Even if it's not merely that many uh, individual sales, it might be that much in terms of revenue just because of the way the Kickstarter went. Uh, let's, let's throw this out there to the guests. What, what are the top RPGs right now? In the market space. Well, you have to start with Pathfinder. Have to, absolutely have to. I agree. It is, it's the top dog. It is. And, and I think it's well deserved. They're good guys. They make good stuff. D20 is not my system of choice. I don't, I don't hate it or anything, but it's, it's not my system of choice. How but, uh, dare you, sir? The Pathfinder, <laughs> the Pathfinder world and the experience they've made, especially with the adventure paths and stuff, I just think are first rate. I often buy them and savage them. The only thing I have to say about Pathfinder, um, they don't have anything – they show no signs of slowing down. But I do have a concern in that I don't see anything on their uh, release schedule that makes me think that – like like D&D Next is coming, right? It's, it's, kind of, it's kind of around the corner. And I don't see anything on the Pathfinder release schedule that looks like it is – I actually a- speculated about this. Uh, well, I didn't do it. One of the columns for ICV2 speculated and I reported on it in yes. uh, the Anacle News column that should have gone up by the time this goes up about two weeks ago where he speculated that this is an intentional move by Paizo, that they're trying to follow kind of what happened with 4th edition, and that they're going to lay low for a little bit, let Wizards of the Coast launch their new edition, bring in all the fans, oh, there's a new edition of d and I haven't played that since high school or college, Let's, let me give that a try now that I've got free time and money, and let them bring in all the new people, hope that they get disenchanted with it, and then come out with their big thing about a year later. You know, if, and if that is their strategy, that's, that's not maybe, that's not a bad move, uh, if that is their strategy. Yeah, the only thing they've got going at Gen Con, from what I can see, is they might have a preview of their new adventure path that they're starting, which is kind of a escape from barrier rifts kind of thing. Barrier peaks, yeah. Yeah, barrier peaks, sorry. And, uh, the advanced race guide are the only things that are coming out even near Gen Con. That was a Freudian slip, barrier rifts, I think. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so yeah, so that's that's a big one in this space. Um, Brandon, what's another top selling, most popular role playing game? Uh, obviously, Watsi and D and D is the the second place in that, at least in my opinion, just because I try to keep myself completely ignorant of the Star Wars world. If I look at the actual sales figures for last year, uh, Star Wars was a, was ahead of D and D as well, but that's a maybe. But yeah, uh, D&D and uh, Star Wars, I think, would be the runners-up. And D&D, for obvious reasons, which is a game with more than 40 years of history, which is kind of a big deal. Un- unbeatable brand recognition. Yes. It is It is almost yeah. the generic term for role-playing. I tell, I used to have coworkers who knew nothing about gaming uh, at my old job, and I'd say, oh, hey, I started this column where I'm writing about role-playing games. What's that? What, like D&D? That's all they knew. 
And, uh, of course, the big thing is going to be this year, of course, D&D Next. And yes. my opinion is is that this is either going to be – it's going to be big, but it's going to be big in either a good way or a bad way. That's my opinion. It's going to either really hit hard or it's going to be kind of a, a miss, uh, you know, that leaves behind a mess. <laughs> that's all. That, that's what I think. In fiscal terms, and I've got absolutely no sources that actually say this, but from connecting the dots from everything I'm reading – Basically, this is going to make or break Wizards of the Coast role-playing division. If D&D Next flops, Hasbro's going to gut the division pretty much. Wow. That's, okay, well, that's kind of that's kind of the pressure they're under right now. Well, I I I wouldn't blame them if that was in fact the case uh based on and like uh, I the said, marketplace. Like I said, I can po- point to absolutely no evidence to this. This is just me kind of reading between the lines. All right. Um, and then, you know, Brandon says there's Star Wars, um, which is Edge of the Empire and the Rebellion era, which, um, Age, what Rebell- is that? Age of Rebellion. Age, Age Rebellion, yes, thank you. Well, Star Wars is going really strong in terms of its brand right now, because we got episode seven just been cast. X-Wing is, is just rocking the world in all the hobby games I've been to. And I, I imagine it's going to stay, even with the, uh, even with the announced changes to the canon where they're getting rid of the, uh, expanded universe. Um, which is going to have an effect on the RPG at some point, I'm sure. Oh, without uh, question. I, I think the Star Wars RPG is likely to stay very strong in the marketplace. What do you think about that, Shane? Yeah, I think it's strong. I'm, I guess I'm a little surprised it's not stronger than it is, especially given the vacuum that D&D has left for a while. That's a little surprising to me. You know, I, I go to conventions all over the world, and I just don't see anybody playing it. I think it's possibly slow to people are slow to embrace it because of its innovative uh, dice mechanic. Yep, and and the fact that it requires the the special dice. Gamers in general, in my opinion, are are slow to embrace change. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's for sure. So I don't I, like I, change. I don't like change. Uh, <laughs> what was so the, that being said? What was the rumor that uh, it got the beginners box got excluded from the innings uh, because uh, because it's one of the yeah. judges didn't like the funny dice. It, let's just <laughs> let's just say that the beginner box not being not taking the win for. Uh, Production values last year was a freaking crime. Win wasn't even nominated. Wasn't well, yeah, wasn't even nominated. But it was, it was definitely sent into the judges for that, and it should have won. Anyway, uh, 40k roleplay is pretty strong. Uh, I, th- I see it at least in all the stores I go to. What do you guys think? Yep, I see it in all the stores. <laughs> I see it a lot in stores as well, and uh, in a couple game stores that are local to me, it's actually kind of a thing where they have group like four or five whole table sections cordoned off for 40k role-playing uh, on certain days. So it's definitely doing well. I don't know about sales or the greater picture, but at least locally for me, it's it's kind of a big deal around here. Well, it's supporting five different lines, and they're just about to come out with the second... I mean, the one of the big deals at Gen Con this year is going to be second edition uh, Dark Heresy. And uh, I don't know if you guys have seen the cover for this game, but it is freaking amazing. I haven't seen it, but I, I've loved most of their covers. I think it's just gorgeous books. If it's the same art that they had on the Kickstarter page, that's the only thing I've seen. What? They're kickstarting Dark Heresy? This is news. Or was it? Maybe it was, maybe it was something else there. Cause I know that kickstarted one of the 40k, the new edition of the 40k. No, 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 that wasn't it. That wasn't it. It was buy into the beta. That's what it was. They had, a, they had where you could, uh, pay money to get access to the closed beta and you got a voucher for, uh, closed PD- beta. What is this? A video game? Well, well, here's the thing. That's something else I wanted to bring up a little bit later is there's been a lot more openness in development in role playing games. You had Pathfinder was completely 
open play test. Deansy next. I never thought Wizards of the Coast would do an open play test for their for Dungeons and Dragons, and then all these other games are having open play tests as well. So I, I actually now have to say closed play test, closed beta, or whatever to to clarify that it's not something you can just go and download. You have to get into it somehow. Well, all I'm saying is I think with the with uh, second edition around the corner, that's going to be it's going to be interesting to see whether that takes off like it did uh, in the past for uh, for the 40k roleplay side. And of course, I mean, you know, just to keep everything in the open, I of course am biased when it comes to yeah. 40k roleplay <laughs> and and Star Wars and everything else. So when I say you know I think it's doing well, I'll take that with a grain of salt because you know I worked on it. Yeah, and that is a nice cover. Savage Worlds is is pretty popular. Uh, I would say it's definitely one of the top-selling ones. Uh, Shane? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Anything to add to that? Uh, no, we don't share our sales numbers, but you know, I can tell you it's in the hundreds of thousands for the core book. Well, that is kind of awesome and amazing. And that is kind of a big deal. Yeah, that's yeah. huge. That is huge. I can tell you... As a guy who knows the numbers that were sold of things like Dark Heresy and, and Rogue Trader, that hundreds of thousands of books is amazing. Uh, and I did manage to find the sales numbers for uh, Fate. They did, uh, Dresden Files did almost 20,000. Fate Core did 14,900 lifetime. That's well, great. That's, Those are great numbers. I mean, Savage Worlds yeah. has been around for 10 years, too. Yeah, so. Spirit of the Century is, wait, no, that's not it. Uh, Spirit of the Century is 9,600. Yeah. So just just as a, a, a comparison, hundreds of thousands of copies of that book. So yeah, Savage Worlds is definitely uh, solid solid in that second tier, uh, like just like all these other ones we've been talking about. So any, any others that we may have missed that are in that top selling, most popular category? I think they don't get as much press these days, but I think the you know, certainly GURPS has has sold oodles of copies. I really have no clue what their sales are, but. Really, you think you think like in 2014 they're not the not in 2014. I think over time. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah. Are we talking I, I, just 2014? Yeah. Well, it, this is the state of the industry for 2014. Because I yeah, have not so. sold hundreds of thousands in 2014. <laughs> <laughs> well, the deluxe edition though is the deluxe edition is a going concern in 2014. That's that's the key thing. Uh, oh yeah. GURPS, I would argue, is probably not a going concern in 2014. It's actually a thing about Steve Jackson games, which I, by the way, I love Steve Jackson games, but it's, it's kind of a bummer to me that they make way more money off of a parody of a role playing game than they do actually off of a real. Yeah, they're definitely the Munchkin <laughs> company now. Oh yeah. Well, they did, uh, they did announce they're doing a new edition of Car Wars today, so. Oh, no kidding. Well, that's, bringing the that's original, impressive. bringing the original designer back on. I got Scott Herring? Yep. I got that press release about two hours ago. Oh, Very wow. Cool. I'm going to have to check that out. Are they going to do it like Ogre? I do not know. It didn't go into that much detail. That would be my guess. Big, big Kickstarter. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's one way to, to really make it happen. We yeah. need to do it that way. That Ogre box is impressive. Two brands that used to be dead, dead in that second tier that kind of fell and in some ways have come back are Battletech and Shadowrun. Shadowrun... I don't know what their specific numbers are, but they're usually, anytime they come out with anything, they're always in the top 10 for the week at drive-thru. So their, their, their digital is definitely selling well. Yeah, well, you, you do find copies of that stuff in all of the, uh, in all of the stores. Yeah, I, I think Shadowrun sales are still very strong. I, I would agree with that. Um, From what I know. I don't think that they've, here's the thing, is I don't think that they've grown those two brands very much. I think a lot of it is going off momentum, even with the new edition of Shadowrun. 
Yeah. Yeah. Which is a shame because I do love those two licenses quite a bit. Uh, let's, uh, let's talk about some things about the future of role-playing games because we're seeing things now, especially what we've just been talking about, uh, is multimedia, you know, tying in with role-playing games. We're talking about things like, I don't know, a television series. <laughs> uh, we're talking about things like mobile apps. Uh, there's, there's a dice rolling. For example, the funny, the funny dice in, uh, Star Wars, you can actually download an app. And just roll them around on your phone. You don't need that way. You don't even need to carry those dice around. Or if you forgot your dice, it's very easy to download that thing and go. There's also casual RPGs. Uh, one of the ones I've run into recently is uh, like Fiasco. If you, if somebody doesn't show up and you can't do your normal game night, we'll play some Fiasco. And then you've got just casual video game tie-ins too. There's uh, I know D&D has had at least two, I think, uh, Facebook games that they've done. That's correct. Uh, and there's also MMOs like Neverwinter. I don't know of any other RPG ones besides Neverwinter, but Neverwinter is definitely one of those. Uh, and of course, the novel lines are still going strong for a lot of these products. Uh, there's still Forgotten Realms novel line, and it still does well. There's still Dungeons and Dragons books. There's Pathfinder novels actually have been coming up qu- uh, quite a bit with they. It seems like to me Pathfinder's kind of absorbed all the good novel writers from <laughs> Watsy. Uh, Dave Gross, Elaine Cunningham, you know, folks like that, and have got them uh, churning out novels now for Pathfinder. Shane, do you have anything to add about multimedia and, and RPGs? Yeah. So we look at all that stuff as uh, things we love to do, and they're great gravy. But we try not to ever let them overshadow the core of our business. The core of our business, and my raison d'etre, for lack of a better word, is making worlds and RPGs. I love doing it. I've given up a couple of big video game jobs to keep doing it, and that's what I want to continue to do. But all this other stuff, like the TV show and so on, I mean, they're, they are a blast. They're fun to do. But we do look at them primarily as bringing new customers into our world. Then uh, and hopefully they will you know, play our game. My mom won't play a tactical RPG, right? But she might play a Telltale version of Deadlands uh, game, and she'll certainly watch the TV show and stuff like that. So we we want to expose as many people as we can, but uh, really at the core of it, we want to keep focused on the RPG and keep making stuff for it. And it's been successful for us for almost twenty years. And uh, it'll be a, be my tombstone when I die. I reckon it'll be a big orange Deadlands tombstone. <laughs> that's okay by me i'm all right with that you know telltale games are very very similar uh they're they're probably the closest thing i can think of in the video game space to like an actual rpg you know, yeah in yeah. terms of the storytelling uh, i mean anyway. if i had my choice for uh, a deadlands computer game right now that would be my first choice you know we i moved to arizona here because we were working on the deadlands mmo and that was as um mmos were starting to to wane my, my theory there, to, to quickly di- diverge, is that people don't mind the cost necessarily of playing uh, an RPG. It's the time commitment. And since most everybody who plays MMOs plays WoW, and they, they figure they're getting 20 hours a week of, of value out of that, if you are an MMO that's trying to compete with them, it's not about the money, it's about the time commitment. So that makes it very hard for everybody else. And that's why free-to-play has risen, because you can keep your free-to-play account anywhere you want without having to pay the 15 bucks a month and not feel like you're not getting your money's worth out of it whenever you do uh, binge and play for a while. And uh, 
we, we stopped doing the Deadlands MMO because the parent company went under. They were doing Stargate Worlds. But uh, that was the, the determination we were coming to. So we were making it free to play even back then. What about you, Brandon? Do you have anything to say about multimedia tie-ins and role-playing games? My opinion is going to probably converge quite well with Shane's in that there are great things for the people that are not hardcore into a tactical RPG that don't, they don't get off on, you know, tweaking the mechanics and teasing out the very best numbers that they can from a system. Choking um, a bear with an elf. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Shane, are you an elf? I'm a half elf. Okay. <laughs> but yes, there, there are people out there that, you know, hey, what is all this RPG stuff about? They'll go ahead and play, you know, a, a Telltale game. And as Shane said, that would be the perfect introduction into what RPGs are as a concept. Yeah. Um, they're great things as an introduction and peripherals. Like you said, a die roller is a great peripheral. Um, things like that. There's also, like for Shadowrun, there was an, an indie, like, uh, Comlink app. I'm not sure what it all entailed, but, Add-ons to the core experience, I think, are great. Uh, what I have seen a couple people talking about, and it's made me very cautious or apprehensive, I think I'd say, is that they're trying to turn that multimedia into the core of their uh, experience and or business model instead of keeping the pen and paper uh, sitting around a table or sitting around online group of people coming together being the core of what their experience is about. And that's kind of where I'm apprehensive in terms of where it's going. Um, companies trying to create that multimedia experience being the whole thing, it makes me very apprehensive. Okay, yeah. I, I agree. Actually, and uh, Brandon, I, I agree very strongly. The um, Not that it can't be done, but I haven't seen it done well yet. There's uh, I play a lot of historical and miniatures games too, and certainly back in the late 90s, early 2000s, and into today, You'll see a lot, if you go to a, a like an HMGS convention, a Historical Miniatures Gaming Society, you'll see some guys trying to moderate computer or moderate war games, miniatures games with computers, especially things like big ship battles and so forth, where they're worried about, you know, does this 16-inch gun penetrate the steel on the side of a battleship at Tushima Straits or something like that. And inevitably, to me, and maybe this is, this is going to come out kind of boastful, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think a good game designer can get the exact same statistics across the battle with a handful of D6s and have a whole lot more fun doing it. Well, I'm going to say, you know, I'm going to push back a little bit on that. I think that a, a game that is has a complexity level to it can be, benefit from, you know, some, some computer assistance. Like if uh, if Siri, right, on my iPhone could, could track all the damage or all the modifiers in my Pathfinder game, I think that would be awesome. But again, I think we're talking about ways that it enhances the experience and not replaces it. This is, I'm actually going to, I'm going to continue to disagree with you because I think when you have that crutch, for lack of a better word, you don't have a more simplified, streamlined system for a human player to grasp. And I think being able to grasp it in your mind helps with so many other things at a meta level that I think it actually still detracts. Well, okay, let's back up a step. I think you, I think you'd agree with me that if, if I said that, that there are times in complexity and depth add value to a game. 
Well, on a strictly one to infinite scale, sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there's there like like for example, one of the reasons why I really like Shadowrun is I can have a gun that has a special ammo, it has a special uh, barrel attachment, it has a special you know smart link built into it. So there's several layers of complexity in just like the choice of my weapon. It's not just like a gun that has a stat. It is modified by a bunch of different things. Yeah. And it's, to me, that is a, a level of, of complexity and depth that I enjoy when it comes to shattering. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, I also like the idea that, uh, you know, you, in say, um, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, you can pick up a hand weapon and that hand weapon can literally mm-hmm. be anything and it all has the same stats, right? Yep. It could be a club or a sword. It, it just depends on what I want at the time. Those are good examples. I, I guess my, you know, there's a, there's a threshold there that, I think if if the game is designed to rely upon that crutch, I and, I and again I'm not saying it can't be done. I have not yet seen it done to where it doesn't make the game complex to the level that most people can't grasp it at a meta level on the fly. Okay, you're saying that even even in a complex game with a lot of depth, it needs to be something that the player can intuitively understand. That's that's what I'm saying in my yeah. my clumsy way. Yeah. So I think your weapon, for example. <laughs> Uh, a great example. I only need to know that at certain times, and it's a manageable level of complexity when I pull the trigger. Right? If if there are ten factors to your character that are kept and updated constantly, and I don't truly understand the interaction of them all, and I need a, a program to do that, that that to me is is too much. And and of course, there's levels in between, but hmm. I haven't seen it done well yet, especially on the war game side. All right. Well, I, in that case, I'm fine. I'm fine agreeing to disagree <laughs> to some extent because I, I do see where you're coming from. But at the same time, I feel like I just intuitively believe as a game designer uh, that there is a game that I could make that would be a lot of fun for everybody where the technology is tracking the depth and the complexity. And we are free to focus on the, the story and the character. And I believe well, you I've, could too, because you're a good game designer. And I think you would have user interface and output uh, data that the person could monitor the important stuff that's going on under the hood or an indicator of the important stuff. Yeah. Regardless yeah, sure. of how complex those are. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah the phone is basically Siri would be drilling down right into the, into the really complex equations where you would be looking at the, the overall, like, okay, so my attack score is high and my defense is low, that kind of stuff. Right. Or in a war game, my men are getting tired. I don't need to know exactly they're, that they're tired because of the armor they're wearing, the weapon they're carrying, the speed at which right. they move, and the humidity of the day, etc. Right. You know, if that that information should all be there to, to drill down on if you want it. But yeah. at a glance, I need to know my guys are getting tired. Yeah, like, uh, if, if they are... If they have used 14.5% of their ammo is not something that's important, but if they've used 50%, that's when the right. Siri would be like, you have half your, you have exactly. half your ammo. Right? That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Okay. You, you guys realize you're talking about video games in the early stages, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. But Dude, I just wanted to make sure because I, I had to say it. I'm sorry. Well, <laughs> no, briefly, well, this a- is why it's so relevant to me because in a lot of the computer games I've worked on, because the computer is the de facto – uh, method of tracking everything, people get it very complex under the hood. What is then hard to communicate to the player is the simplistic, uh, final output. Yeah, and how it all ties together. You know, just because it can be so complex, they frequently make it that way. Yes, I agree. That's that. That's a discussion for another time. But yes, 
I, I did want to back up a little bit and go back to we were talking about multimedia tie-ins and Shane was mentioning specifically about how these are kind of the gravy. These are the way he was talking about was almost marketing for the game itself as opposed to trying to create a multimedia thing of which role the role playing game is part of. And I don't disagree. That's a bad move for some of the larger companies for Wizards of the Coast or Pathfinder. That would be a good thing to do because I don't know that you can monetize just a role playing game at the levels you need to support that much corporation involved in yeah. this day and age, just because the hobby's growing, but it's also growing out. People are playing more people are playing games and there are more gamers out there, but there are also a lot more games that are just as good as the top tier stuff. And they're coming from small independent developers who can that believe the corporate term is mobility. Yeah, we're talking about fracturing the market as well. Yes, exactly. Well, let me let me throw something out because I may have come on a little strong there. My my point. We were talking about the business of RPGs when I made those comments. Yes, and uh, so from our point of view, from a business point of view, that's how we see them. You know, it, let's say the TV show uh, actually gets greenlit and it's made and it makes a ton of money and that's all great. But you know, that's that's gone in let's you know at best case a decade, right? And I plan on making games till I die. So that's from a business point of view, that's how we see it. Now, from a a heart point of view, from an emotional point of view, I I have been fortunate enough to be um, creatively involved with the script for the Deadlands TV show, for example. And my entire heart and soul are thrown into that, into making it the absolute best TV show I can make. Six seasons in a movie. That's what I'm (laughs) I'm, going to put this out there. Six seasons in a movie. That's what we want. <laughs> that would be great. I'll be thrilled and, if we get one season. But. And, you de- and having that heart is very, very important because there are some <laughs> movies out there based on role-playing games. I'm not going to be naming names. But <laughs> you could definitely see... <clears throat> you could definitely see there were some issues with that side of things where they didn't have enough people that were involved in the game involved in the movie. Yeah, And right. that's something that's very important is when companies are doing these sort of multimedia tie-ins to not, yes, you're going to have to make sacrifices because a movie or a TV show or a novel is not a game. You can't sit there and put on screen, okay, yeah, this is him rolling a critical hit. You have to express that visually or through the story or through the medium. And you have to make sacrifices to the game to do that because it is a different medium. But you can't move so far away that you're almost detached from the original source. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's kind of get get to this to a brief close before we step into the future of role playing games from 2014. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back. Did you think the spirit store was only open during Halloween? Well, I've got some news for you. The perfect place for that hard-to-find accessory for your newest cosplay, unique home decor for your LARP, that awesome prop for your D&D game, they've got it all. Whether you're on a budget or you're looking for the highest quality product you can find, Spirit has what you need. Just go to the show notes or to GamersTavern.org and click on the affiliate link to support the show and find that perfect item now. And we're back talking about the state of the industry 2014. Uh, you know, we had just kind of wrapped up a, a discussion about multimedia, which I honestly, we could do a whole show on multimedia and role playing games. Well, we did one just on movies, so. 
and we did one just on technology. Um, so there's that. But let's uh, let's move on to a, a slightly different approach. Let's talk about where the industry, the role playing game industry, is going. Where is it going to be in the future? And maybe we'll get into a little bit where it should be going, as opposed to maybe where it is going. Who wants to start on this one? I can. Go ahead, Shane. I think there is a bit of a, a split right now between what people want to play and what they want to read. So we're seeing, um, you know, I think we're seeing a, a strong desire for casual play for the narrative type games like Fate stuff, like uh, Jim Pinto's Protocol, like we're doing with, with the Deadlands stuff. And I think that's really great for, I'm at a convention, I'm worn out, I want to play something, but I don't necessarily want to have miniatures and terrain and all that kind of stuff. A very strong portion of our crowd, however, you'll have to pry their miniatures from their cold, dead fingers. They they love making the big terrain and the complex battle maps and all that kind of stuff. And I think I think both are great. Both are awesome. I think the narrative stuff needs to be understood, embraced, and perhaps married with something that's a little bit more tactile. So I would bet that we're not the only ones thinking that and working on uh, games that do that. Okay. Uh, what about you, Brandon? I think where the industry is go- is going, in, it's going in two very distinct uh, directions, at least from the overhead view of someone from the outside looking in. Uh, and that is they're trying, especially with D&D Next, with their most recent announcement being that there's a whole online experience as well as the core game. Um, Let's what? see if this uh, actually comes true, as opposed to the, the last right. they did the for last fourth three edition. times. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, how long know. is how long is the virtual tabletop been supposed to be? Oh. I think that was coming yeah. out in summer of two thousand one. Train wreck. Uh, right. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> Anyways, the uh, <clears throat> the whole thing is is that the a lot of the big players in tabletop RPG are trying to move towards large tentpole is the uh, term for it. Large tentpole type type releases where they'll create this one huge thing and then franchise off of it. And that is what is holding up their entire business model. And that's something that the uh, video games industry right now is realizing is a bad idea. I think it's going to be a far too little too late, especially in, in the uh, aspect of WotC. They're trying to tentpole the hell out of D&D Next. And it's... Like you said, it's going to be a great success or critical failure. Either way, they're setting themselves up for just trying to recreate it, and it's not going to work in the future. And the video games industry on the whole, and I'm just using this because it's something I'm familiar with, and it's something that I see that the RPG, the tabletop industry as a whole, shifting towards later on in the future, you know, eight, nine, ten years in the future, is that... Uh, video games for a lot of the publishers are turning towards more niche games. You know, they're not turning in the one or two games per year that are the huge tentpoles that they franchise off of. They're putting out 10 or 15 games that are not near as marketed, not near as, you know, huge, but they're still quality productions. They create much more customer satisfaction, customer loyalty, and that's where the video game industry is going, and I see that as something the tabletop industry may or may not go towards and i think truthfully that it's where it should go but that's for later on but as far as where it's going now i see a lot of the big publishers the the quote big dogs gravitating towards the tentpole style of uh, release nothing release nothing 
as opposed to you know a consistent stream of support, which is something that publishers like for Savage Worlds is great for. There's a whole lot of um, support for. I, I will say that is something that your company does great, Shane, is uh, continued support for your system. And it's it's great for filling those niches, right? Like if oh, you absolutely. Want, if you want specifically, for example, uh, we were just talking about it, the the uh, the old school feel of Star Frontiers, you've got that. Mm-hmm. If you want the dark fantasy approach to playing monsters, you've got that. Mm-hmm. If you've got if you if you want to play Romans fighting monsters in <laughs> a weird fantasy Rome, you can do that too, right? Yep. Uh, and those are all specific niches. Yes. Shane, that's. Yep. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, sir. You are correct. Okay. Yep, it's a, it's a very intentional strategy. So, so yeah, I, I I see where you're coming from there. Whereas, interestingly enough, I think Pathfinder is also filling a niche, and that niche being people who like a particular because because uh, the engine that drives Pathfinder, the uh, the the D twenty system, is kind of in itself a niche. I mean, if people just really like rolling d20s and knowing what a saving throw is and, you know, calculating how many gold pieces they took out of the Dragon's Little Horde, right? I think that's just, that's how it is for for those people. That is that is a niche. I think there's three companies, three games specifically I want to bring up. D&D Next, Pathfinder, and Shadowrun. And when it comes to two different concepts that companies are going for these days, it seems like, and will probably keep going for for a while. The first one is trying to satisfy the core audience to make sure that their core fans are, that's who they're writing for. And that's pretty much Paizo's bag. They're the ones who said, we're not going with this fourth edition thing. We're sticking with our 3.5 and we're going to improve that and make that work as well as we can. And that's going to be our thing. And they've stuck to that the entire time and it's done very very well for them but i'm not sure in the future how that's going to hold out if they if they really need to innovate or if they're just going to try to stick on to that core audience then there's the other side of the coin which is trying to make the game more accessible to bring in new players and this is what catalyst game labs is doing with shadowrun they changed a lot of stuff in shadowrun fifth edition to try to make the game more accessible and Honestly, I th- a lot of it is also trying to play off of the, the success of Shadowrun Returns and try to bring those fans in, which I actually had a, I saw a funny tweet, uh, a little bit after, uh, Dragonfall launched. Someone said, I really hope that there's a good wiki for this Shadowrun Returns game. I want to turn it into a pen and paper game. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. great. And then you've got, That's awesome. Yep. And then you've got D&D Next, which is right in the middle. They're trying to bring back their core audience. They're trying to bring back the old school gamers who jumped ship to Pathfinder while at the same time bringing in new players by making the game more accessible and easier to get into and they're splitting the difference between the two and I don't know how it's going to turn out in the end based on the playtest. I think they're doing a pretty good job of trying to uh, trying to serve both masters but we're not going to know until at least Gen Con how the final product turns out on that. Well, let me bring up a point here. Um... Definitely one of the genesis points for, for me wanting to, to discuss this whole topic um, is there was a panel at PAX by Mike Merles and Ryan Dancia about the future of, of RPGs. Uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And while a lot of interesting things were said, um, one of the things that stuck out to me as an important note was uh, Mike Merles saying that because there are so many different ways to spend our time gaming – specifically calling out things like mobile phones 
he believes uh, gamers are no longer willing to do things like character backgrounds or uh, 300 page realms books and was, you know, stating, well, if I can complete a mission in Mass Effect 2 in an hour and a half, why can't I do a RPG game in an hour and a half? And as part of all this was the whole, they brought up the whole idea of the uh, 20 minutes of fun and four hours of gaming. And there's a lot of stuff, I mean, there's a lot of points that Merle's makes that I, I agree with. Yes, there are a lot of things that are splitting our time these days. Yes, the the ways that we approach our entertainment has changed, absolutely. Although I would have to say that if you're only having 20 minutes of fun in a four-hour game, you and your group are probably doing it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> at, at least in my opinion. Absolutely. Without question. Um, but aside from that, so Merle seems to be suggesting to me that gaming needs to become more like mobile gaming. That Sorry, that the RPG gaming side needs to become more like mobile gaming. That it needs to be more accessible, easier to get in and out, more casual, etc. And on one level... Making a game user-friendly, making RPGs in general user-friendly, yes, I agree with that as well. I think that's not a bad idea. One of the things I love about Savage Worlds is it's fast, fun, and furious. It is user-friendly. I would say Star Wars is user-friendly. I would, you know, go so far as to say if you understand, you know, that if you like that level of complexity and really are in, in, in enjoy deep uh, choices in the mechanics, Shadowrun is actually not that, uh, is not user-unfriendly at least. So there's that. But the thing that bugs me and the thing that I, I do definitely want to push back on, I don't think the right answer is to make RPGs more like video games, especially, you know, mobile phone games. I think the answer is to embrace what makes an RPG special and distinct. And that's the experience of sitting around a table and pretending to be someone else for however long that may be, you know, kind of immersing yourself in that experience. That's what I want more out of my RPGs. It's not so much the, the experience of playing a game, per se, as it is taking on that role. What do you guys think? I think uh, Merle's is, look, is doing it wrong. I mean, <laughs> quite frankly. I've read the uh, interview that you're talking about, and what he's alluding to is... A single correct answer for everyone that leads to maximum sales numbers for me. And that's what he's alluding to in all of his statements. It, it enrages me to think that someone truly believes that in this day and age, having watched it happen in both the novel industry way back in the 1800s, the movie industry in the late, or excuse me, in the early 80s, late 90s, and in uh, 2000, 2010s. The video game industry, watching that sort of correct answer for everyone not work. Why someone thinks that is something that is positive for their industry just completely baffles me. And it, yes. Well, oh. if Brandon, if you've been around <laughs> since the 1800s, you're clearly an elf. <laughs> or a vampire. I'm not sure which. I told you I'm an orc, sir. <laughs> well, a really old orc. <laughs> there are uh, no old orcs. <laughs> There is no such thing as the elf conspiracy. No, but that's a good answer. Uh, what about you, Shane? Are you familiar with this uh, particular panel? I'm just out of curiosity. Uh, I know of the panel. I've not read or watched the uh, the results, but I would would say a couple of things. Um, I think saying that a RPG shouldn't be like a mobile game. I, I certainly agree in principle, but I think it's probably uh, exactly like our conversation uh, just a bit ago about complexity. You know, there are, there are exceptions to every rule. There are degrees to that answer. 
slimming down the complexity is a fine thing to do to a point. I think the important thing to me is, uh, you know, the, the social aspect and sitting around with your friends and impressing them with a, a clever maneuver or, or something like that, which is why the kinds of games I like allow you to do, uh, you know, clever maneuvers and, and smart things like that. But to the whole Watsy D&D thing, they are in a room all by themselves. And I'm not just talking about sales numbers. Their numbers are lower, lower than Paizo's right now, so that would put you know, Paizo above. But the brand is so well recognized, and I, I don't, I don't think I can re repeat this number. But I was the executive producer of Neverwinter uh, for a time before I moved on to good work on a, a Tryon game. And uh, during that time, it came to light what Wizards of the Coast was looking to license the Dungeons and Dragons brand for for computer games, and it was many, many, many millions of dollars. So that almost certainly dwarfs their sales for RPGs for many years. Uh, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't know what the apples and oranges there are, but it, it, it would almost make sense for Wizards to run that division at a significant loss to continue branding it, and especially once they shed themselves of the the movie deal they've been trapped in for the last twenty years. And have uh, you know a real studio wanting to do D and D movies in a world that now accepts D and D movies, uh, probably not to the level of Lord of the Rings, but you know some percentage of it. They've actually have shed that deal. According to them, they have a deal with Universal, and uh, Sweet Pea Entertainment is claiming, "Nope, we still have the deal." And it's I've actually read the court documents about this and covering this one pretty well, and it is a complicated nightmare of legalese. Universal isn't going to invest till they get rid of that. We could do a whole show on on D and D specifically on what 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 D and D needs to do as a brand. I think that's for sure. I could do two hours on that damn movie deal. Yeah, but, absolutely. Uh, one thing I wanted to say is that I really want to understand that the D and D intellectual property is not technically owned by Wizards of the Coast. It is owned by Hasbro. Right. Hasbro, Wizards of the Coast is a division of Hasbro. Hasbro is a multi billion dollar company and when they're calling out those numbers it's because they think that the brand recognition is worth that much to video game manufacturer video game companies and they are licensing it outside of which is the coast they've got a uh, their lego type set called creo they've got a dritzed version that's coming out that they've licensed internally because it's something they manufacture uh whenever they purchased HeroScape, they shoehorn D, D onto that well Again, we could talk about D&D brand as a whole show. The only thing I wanted to add to Shane uh, is what he was saying is like, just, just to give the listeners an idea of, of scale. Uh, at least a couple of years ago, I was told that the IP for Shadowrun was worth roughly $5 million. So that just gives you an idea. And that's, uh, those numbers are, are so incredibly subjective, right? I mean, to the right guy, it might yeah. be worth $20 million. To a typical investor, it might be worth you know, whatever half of its annual revenue is. And that was before Shadowrun Returns brought it back to life. You know, there's a lot of things that happened yeah. in between those last two years. So yep. who knows what the value of it is now, but I'm just, I'm just pointing out like something that I was told as far right. as a, a number to give, to give some, some scale to that. So the thing that, that I want to point out that is, it's not so much necessarily Specifically what Merle's is saying, although I do, I have, you know, I have kind of brought up a few points about those specifics that I, I, do, I disagree with. But the thing that, that 
makes me a little nervous is that Mike Merles and Ryan Dancy, Mike Merles is the lead designer on, on D&D Next. And Ryan Dancy is a, you know, he's a, he's a fairly influential figure. So both of them together are fairly influential figures in our industry. And when these guys are the ones who start saying, here's what RPGs should be in the future, that's where I get a little nervous because these are, you know, these are some folks who are out in front trying to lead the way. And it feels like to me, they're trying to lead the way in a direction I don't really particularly care for. Well, so Ryan is a, is a, is a friend of mine. Mike is a friend of mine, but they're in a very different segment of our industry. I mean, I'm not sure that those are the two best guys to be giving that talk, to be to be quite frank. And, you know, I say that I would say that to, to Mike and Ryan's face, you know, while I'm buying a beer. But, you know, Ryan has tons of friends in the industry and knows lots of stuff and is an incredibly smart guy. But he doesn't, he doesn't make RPGs anymore. Well, that's and, a good point. I mean, specifically, you know, and with no disrespect for Mr. Dancy, but it's in his best interests that RPGs bring people to the MMO market, not the other way around. Yep, right. that's Cause, true. Cause he's, cause he's currently working as, uh, the Pathfinder Online guy. Yeah. And, and think about Mike's world, right? So Shane's world is, man, I've got this cool idea for a game. I hope other people buy it. Uh, I'm, how am I going to guerrilla market it and get people to know about it in this, you know, very challenging marketing environment with so much competition? That's my world, right? Same world that Ross lived in for Accursed. Mike's world is Hasbro wants to, and, and you know, it's not like I, know this for a fact so grain of salt it's my opinion but mike's world is hey hasbro wants to know if they should invest another hundred thousand dollars in some expansions to this DD thing you're working on that we don't really understand or can we just print some more monopolies with some license on it and sell 10 billion of them uh next quarter right that's the pressure that mike lives under as well as oh you got all these haters on the internet who hate fourth edition oh but we've got these guys who love it and in just the fan pressures that he's on from a brand that's that's so well known. And hey, these guys are making a computer game, and this was the issue we ran into. What system should we be using or you know pretending to use? That kind of <laughs> stuff. So Mike's world is is nowhere near the same as a guy like me or a guy like uh, Jason um, Youngblood was it that created Fiasco? You know, which is a, a cool groundbreaking kind of RPG, or at least it was to me. I believe it's Jason Morningstar. Morningstar, I'm sorry. My apologies, Jason. So, you know, that's that's just a very different world that we live in. And then, then you start getting into what is the definition of an RPG. You know, I, being a, my computer with my computer game hat on, I still cringe whenever somebody calls any computer game an RPG just because <laughs> you get to pick a level and, you know, you, right. you get more experience as you go up. I'm not role playing. I do actually role play when I play computer games, much to my detriment. But uh, most you know, Sh- Shane, I've got to ask: What is your definition of an RPG? I, I, to me, it's the subjectivity. You need to be able to do anything you want. And the reason I didn't care for D and D Fourth Edition is it really rammed home the. And I think I think three point five does this too. But Fourth Edition really, really made it clear: it's not what do you do; it's what card do you play. And I want my players to say, I'm going to jump for the uh, chandelier, swing across and try to stab the guy in the hand while he holds the prince's hostage or whatever, right? I want those cool subjective moments. And I want to be able to go, okay, mm, roll this, roll this, minus this, minus this. Awesome, you made it. And pat the guy on the back. I was going to say, this is something I've called playing the character sheet, not the character. Yeah, yeah. And if your game is a is a board game, if these are the moves you can do and you you can't do anything else, I think that's a... That's not an RPG to me anymore. 
What about you, Brandon? What's your definition of an RPG? It depends on which context we're speaking from, <clears throat> in my opinion. <laughs> All right. Um, in the context of tabletop and anything that is not a uh, interactive video game medium, uh, an RPG is a game in which you are taking upon taking upon yourself the role of somebody else in a world that is not our own. That is my personal definition of an RPG. It could be as simple as a game like All Flesh Must Be Eaten, where you flip a couple coins and you got your character. Or it can be something as infinitely complex as Rifts. Um, either way, you're still role-playing a different, in a different world as a different person. To shift over to the video game context, and this is probably <laughs> where a lot of people have issues, uh, especially like uh, Shane was saying. You know, he, he, he takes umbrance uh, when someone calls video game an RPG, because according to the previous de definition, it's not an RPG. When you're playing somebody else in a game that was designed not for you specifically. Okay. I wish I had a better way of saying that. <laughs> had to turn in dumb speak there for a minute. But yeah, an RPG is where you make choices based upon a character not of your creation. I guess is the better way of putting it. Uh, like Dragon Age 2 is a perfect example. You're making choices for this hawk dude. I don't know who he is. I guess. I'm not, you know, I'm not invested. Uh, that is the video game terminology for RPG. Uh, different designers like to say RPG elements and XP scaling and unlockables, and that's, that's just industry garbage, in my opinion. But, um, Wherein you are controlling someone not of your creation in a world, or in the video game world, is going to be my definition of an RPG. Well, I think it's interesting, both of you said that it's, and this is something I brought up earlier, is it's about more about the experience and less about the mechanics. Yes. Uh, I like to say that my, my definition of an RPG is one where I'm taking on the role of a character, and I get to creatively solve problems, or come up with a creative solution to a challenge. That is my favorite definition of an RPG, uh, and that's because the RPG allows me to do something that I would not normally do in my real real world. Uh, Daryl, what's your uh, definition of an RPG? Uh, my definition of a role-playing game is a game, you see, where you play a role... Not sorry, you you guys kind of you guys kind of did that one perfectly. Profound, <laughs> <laughs> and it's a it's game. <laughs> the only thing is, I'm going to take the Supreme Court's ruling on pornography and say I can't give you a definition, but I know it when I see it, because okay. I can think of based on your definitions, I can find exceptions that are definitely not role playing games that meet that definition. Like for board games, uh, something like uh, Last Night on Earth. You're playing a character and you're making their choices for them. And it's a character that's not you in a world that's not the real world. But that's not a role-playing game. It's a board game. Because so I don't get to make creative decisions. I just get to do what I'm able to do in the game. My choices are limited by what's presented in front of me. There is no opportunity for creativity. Well, yeah. And it's it's one of those things that's really hard to pin down a strict definition that's going to define everything because it yeah, is such a broad genre or a broad medium. Well, technically, Pictures with Friends... It suits my definition because you are a creatively able, you are able to use your creativity, but it's not a role playing game because you're just a, you're just literally drawing pictures for someone else. Okay. I, I think I might have a definition that works. Okay. <laughs> for, for tabletop role playing games. 
interactive storytelling with a framework to decide decisions that would normally be up to chance. Well, that that does kind of push you outside of some things that are like diceless, you know, like, for example, um, Amber. Well, there's still it may there's still rules for this random thing. There's do I hit or do I hit or do I miss? There's still a framework, but okay, just you know we're talking again. Defining what an RPG game is probably could take up a whole show. So let's. (laughs) I think I think we've we've covered some of the good stuff there. So having discussed what we think RPGs are, and having discussed where uh, this PAX panel thinks they're going, what are some positive things that we think? Are going to happen to RPGs in the future. Where where is RPGs going in the future that we are excited about? More gamers. <laughs> that's always good. More people playing games means more games to play, and that's always a good thing. It means more people buying games, which means more money going into the industry. And one of the greatest trends that I've seen is, and it may also be over the past year or two because of the vacuum of not having any new big D and D releases that a lot of the money that was going to Wizards of the Coast and therefore Hasbro has been going to a lot of the independent companies. I'm going to say uh, global games. Like um, One thing I'm excited about is seeing Shadows of Estrin, which is a French game that has been uh, through the magic of Kickstarter, uh, is now available on, on store shelves here in America, and it's pretty interesting looking. There's something else that I I want to see more of, and it's something that we can only do today because of the interconnectivity we have with the internet. Is what um, Sean Patrick Fannin's doing with Shine Tar? Oh, living, yeah, like the living yeah. campaign stuff. It, I mean, yeah. it's, and, and when I say living campaign, this isn't just like, oh, well, sixty five percent chose Duke what's his name over Sir Herferber to take the throne, so that's what we're going with for canon. No, it's you submit reports over what happened in your game and. If your character killed this person, that person's dead in everyone's game, and that character is the character that killed them. And it, it's like everyone's game is set in a real world, and that's something that we just flat out could not have done. Without the internet, yeah. Without the is internet there, and the connectivity, it, and even the technology we have now with social media where people are used to that language. It's it's allowing a persistent world with choices that have consequences, which and is really I am, cool. I am really keeping an eye on that because that is just mind-blowing especially for such a small company to pull off something like that i want to i want it to work and i want it to work well and i just want to see what what sean's going to do with that that's amazing to me um shane what do you think about the future of rpgs in a positive way well i think that's a good one the global interactivity is is definitely a cool thing i think it's incredibly hard to do my first experience with it or contact with it was torg oh yeah yeah with the infiniverse but that was very much uh what you said uh, you know, 65% of the people voted this happened. So I think, you know, that was a, a great start. I think there's more clever things we can do. Sean is doing some of it, but the level of, you know, organization and, and time that it takes is tough. So I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm watching Sean closely, and I think it's a very cool thing that he's doing. Um, I think the the rise of, um, uh, for lack of a better word, for little guys, you know, for a guy who's got this cool idea for a game and some cool mechanic and, Kickstarter allows him now to not break his entire family uh, to make it. I think that's a great thing. And I literally do play everything. And every chance I get, I play a different game. And, you know, I want to learn from them and get better at my craft. And it's it's tough because you certainly don't ever want to steal an idea, right? That's just the worst thing you can do. But every game any of us make is built upon the foundations of many other games that other people built all the way back to Gary and probably somebody before that. So 
little tricky, but I, I love seeing all the innovation that, that people are coming up with. And we find ways, and I'll speak just for, for us real quick, we find ways to build it in sometimes. For example, uh, Torg had dramatic task resolution. We have, uh, we have dramatic, uh, this is, we have critical task resolution. I'm getting my, my, my terms mixed up. But we have we have a system that, that lets you do the, the big dramatic defuse bomb scene and all that kind of stuff that uh, the Torg excelled at so well in our own way and you know, different mechanics and so forth. But it was absolutely inspired by Torg, and I've you know, certainly never said otherwise. Uh, I think the, the Warhammer 3rd edition that Fantasy Flight did, the party, what do you call it, Ross? The... Uh, there's the party character sheet yeah, the that party you character. could slot the abilities into. Yeah, that was one thing that Jay Little designed, and I, I really liked that. Yeah, me too. And while we would never uh, steal that idea, you know, we might have edges in the future that apply to a party or something. That's that would be, I think, a, an appropriate way to get the same idea across in our game system without you know ripping off the Jay or the guys at Fantasy Flight, and uh, that kind of stuff's pretty cool. I think. I, well, I think there's something you could definitely be inspired by in, in, in just, you know, certain mechanics, uh, yeah. like, like a, 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 a team character sheet. There's, there's ways to, to be inspired by that without, without copying. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then I guess finally is the, the rise of player agency in all these games. You know, we oh, yeah. have Benny's, Fate has, uh, you know, Fate points and so forth where the, the players get to decide a little bit of the story. And I, you know, there's there's great discussions to be had about how much they should have and how little and so on. But I love the fact that in that cool moment when you have that great idea, it's not just the GM breaking the rules for you. I think that feels a little cheap sometimes. But there is a a legal way to break the rules for players with with these uh, these devices, and that's uh, that's a lot of fun. That's I've got a lot of memories and cool stories from that myself and and watching others. Yeah, I, absolutely. I love boost resources. I love giving some narrative control to the players. I think those are both excellent things that yeah. I think a lot of games could actually really benefit from. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I've been playing Champions lately. Uh, yeah, that's our Avengers game. And I can't tell you how much I missed a boost resource. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, I wish I could boost this. I wish I could spend something to make this actually work because I really want it to work. Right. Uh, and here's what I know. think's really neat about it. I think, every, I think game designers, because we're so inherently used to trying to figure out how people are going to break all our games, we look at those things and say, well, you're just going to you know, one-shot the big bad guy with them. And that's absolutely true, and you got to watch out for that. But I have seen so many times, like, um, a thief needs to pick a lock. And it's not an important lock. It's not a game-changing lock. But damn it, he's the thief, and he wants to look like a thief to the rest of the party. Yeah, he so, wants his moment. Yeah, yeah. So I've seen in Savage Worlds, you know, knowing that a big fight is coming and those bennies are going to be important, a guy will spend one, two, three bennies just to pick that lock or some other mundane thing because, by God, he's supposed to be good at it, and the dice just aren't agreeing with him that day. That's cool. Yeah. I like. that. No, I I agree. It's it's a good way to to add some protagonism to your character. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Plus, it let me kill him easier. So. <laughs> well, and Brandon is a GM. He likes to throw bad guys at us that have a boost resource of their own, which uh, sometimes can be a pissing contest. Like, for example, there was a bad guy, and he's like, "I'm going to spend edge to soak that hit." No, you're not. Well, I'm going to spend more. To, I'm going to spend more to soak that. No, you're not. And it became a, a thing where we were going to give up all of our boost resource, which we did, to make sure that that guy went down. And it was kind of satisfying. You know, it was cool. Uh, but yeah, yeah. for that one about in about three weeks. <laughs> Yeah. So, Daryl, 
let's talk about where the RPG industry is going that, you know, let's, let's say some things maybe that we don't want to see or that we hope is not going to happen because there's, there's no hate on this podcast. One thing that I see that is becoming an issue with some, and it's, the thing is, it's not even the game companies, it's the fans and the fan organizations that they're trying to bring and trying, they're trying to fracture. It becomes the problem of, I have a question about uh, this. I just started gaming and I'm running this edition of this game and I'm having this problem. Oh, I have a solution. Play this edition. And that is not helpful in any way, shape, or form. It's detrimental to the entire thing. And it's, 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 I know it's something that's been around forever and it's probably not going anywhere because that's, just kind of how a lot of gamers are but a lot of that attitude is starting to leach into some of the even official fan organizations for certain games and that's a poison we need to get out of this industry because it's alienating people and it's just not conducive to anything right and i'm going to say like i i do like the idea of making the games more user friendly but what i don't want to see is i don't want to see us move away from detailed and interesting campaign settings. I don't want us to say that game prep is not valid anymore, right? I, I don't want people to think that inventing or detailing something that takes more than an hour and a half to, to, uh, to experience is a bad thing. That's, that's kind of where I'm coming from. Now, granted, I am a very traditional role player, you know, when it comes to that, but, uh, you know, that's part of the reason why I enjoy writing adventures and reading adventures and, and buying adventures is because then I don't have to come up with, uh, I don't have to spend all that time and energy coming up with the, 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 the plan. I could do what's in the book. But if, but if I only bought something, let's say I spent $30 on, you know, return to Undermountain and it only, it only satisfied our group for an hour and a half. I wouldn't very, I wouldn't feel that was a great purchase. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> you know, I, I, again, so for me, I just want to see, I, I hope that we are not moving in a direction where we're, spending more time dealing with the game part of role-playing game and less time dealing with the experience. Something that I just truthfully hope doesn't worm its way into the uh, tabletop RPG industry is the theory of disposable experience. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that the free-to-play area of the video game industry has become uh, wildly accepting of, is that it's okay if your um, experience that you're catering to players is completely disposable, unmemorable, as long as you got that quarter or that five bucks out of them, it doesn't matter. I sincerely hope that the tabletop RPG industry does not go in that way. Uh, there's a couple, I'm, I'm not going to point out any publishers or uh, development houses that are talking about this, but it's something that I've seen a couple places and I sincerely hope it doesn't happen. Yeah, I, I have also seen a couple of productions that have been focused very, you know, very sharply on the math side or the game side or saying that it's okay that this game is not fun 18% of the time because 82% of the time it is fine, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm like, from a game designer perspective, I'm like, what? But uh, anyway, uh, Shane, let's, let's talk about some negative things where they did. RPG industry could be headed, or at least we hope when they're not headed. I I hope all you other companies make terrible games. <laughs> <laughs> S- 
spoken like um, a true businessman. <laughs> uh, and I don't, of course, because again, I, I am a I'm a fan and player of everything. <laughs> I guess for me, I, I I agree with you completely. I don't want to see things dumbed down, but I also don't particularly enjoy. 50, 60, 70, 80 dollar books anymore that I will never read and never get through. I like uh, something that's a bit more digestible. So uh, I guess as much as we don't want things to be te- too dumbed down, I would also prefer things not to return to the advanced squad leader days of, of yore either. I think there's a happy medium. I think, you know, I think there's places for people who, like me, love a 300 page book all about a great setting. Uh, and I think there's still places for, for the Explorer's edition of a particular game as well. I mean, it's just, it's, it's what you're in the mood for, right? I just don't want the marketplace to be one and not the other or exclude one, you know? I agree. So basically you want, you want something that's kind of like you have your, uh, if you're wanting that big complex experience, you have to say an advanced version of that game. But if you don't want all that, maybe you have a basic version. Not, not me. I don't like, I don't like it split like that. Then I feel like I'm missing something. And, you know, my, my preference is purely personal. It really has nothing to do with the industry. I'm just, you know, I, I just don't have time to read those huge books anymore, and I know I won't get to all the material in them. So personally, I like things that are a little more digestible. So I guess that joke was that joke was going around when Next was first announced that, that one of the rumors was there was going to be a basic version, which is the version they're playtesting. They're going to be adding in all the rules modules to make an advanced version that has all the detailed tactical miniature rules and stuff like that. So I, I guess that joke isn't as widespread as I thought. Sorry. Well, you know, it's it's also it's important to point out, like, even though I've been spending a lot of this podcast talking about how much I like the the creative vision side of an RPG, it, it is important to point out that it is a medium where there is a science, right? There is some statistics, mathematical models, game theory. There are things that go into RPGs that I do appreciate greatly, and uh, I just don't want anybody to get the impression that I'm I'm saying I, I like my games with less rules. That's not necessarily true. Uh, <laughs> But I, what I do like to see is I like to see mechanics, and, and this is where I hope we don't go with RPGs, is I hope we don't go in a, in a direction or more in a direction where the mechanics overshadow that creative vision or don't, or no longer serve that creative vision. And, you know, we, we, we don't want to talk about any specific, uh, examples of that. So, but there you go. All right. Um, let's, uh, we're getting close to, to the last call here. So let's do final thoughts. Um, Brandon, what are your final thoughts on the state of the RPG industry for 2014? Cautiously optimistic. The industry is in a place where it can do very great things, and it can also step on its feet and tumble into an abyss. I sincerely hope the former is what happens. Well, something I really liked that you said was talking about the way that games should be niches. Yes. Because I I do believe that if you make stuff people want... They will buy it. it and like absolutely. the, and that's where the niches come in. Is instead of like the tent poles, like you said, are trying to make people want the one thing, you know? Anyway. Um, Shane, final thoughts on the state of the industry for 2014. That's, that's a pretty good thought on niches. I love that the industry is big enough now to support, uh, niches. And we, you know, we, we fully embrace the many niches that we serve. So I love that. I think, uh, D next is going to do very well. And I think it's going to, hurt the rest of us for a short while uh, as, as it's, it debuts and sucks in dollars and excitement out of people for everything else. I think that's just inevitable. I've seen that and been through that a couple of times. 
but I think over time, I'm a, I'm a big believer in a rising tide floats all boats. So as more people, and especially younger people, which most of us don't cater to or bring into the hobby, get into it and start playing, everyone benefits from it. Outstanding. Um, Daryl? Uh, I think that the game industry is pretty good right now. We're on good footing. We've got a lot to look forward to and a lot of ifs out there. A lot of question marks. We don't know exactly how D&D Next is going to turn out. We don't know how Paizo is going to react to it. We don't know how that's going to affect all of these smaller games. But what we do have right now is, I think, really, really good. We have multiple choices for any type of game you want to play. If you want to play a game where you're playing a horror-inspired Western that also has fantasy elements and maybe a little bit of sci-fi... Deadlands has been out for ages. It's sitting right there. You want this. It's there. You want this. It's there. And, and it's awesome, I hear. Yes. <laughs> it is. It's just I, awesome I'm willing to speak have. from experience that it is awesome. Yes. <laughs> if you want something that's if you want something that's like Ravenloft on PCP, you've got it. It's, yeah. Whatever you want <laughs> is out there. You just have to do and it's not even that much. It's like search RPG space and type in whatever genre mashup you want. You're going to find someone has kickstarted it at some point in time as probably a Savage Worlds campaign setting. And or there's a conversion of it somewhere on a fan site. Yeah, I agree. That's yeah, a great point. And it's and it is it's great to have that breadth in the industry and it's not it's not like it was in the 80s and 90s, especially in the D20 boom, where all of this product is weighing down the industry. I don't think that's happening right now. And that's, I think, a really, really good thing that we have all this out there and we have all these shared ways to tell stories and we're getting more players all the time. It's well, great. Yeah, I, th- I think what you're saying is there's three things. There's the technology that is allowing a standard guy with a computer to basically make a, a good role-playing game, you know, through Kickstarter or whatever else. And he's doing it. And that's where the indie market's coming from. And thanks to technology like Google Plus and Skype, more people are gaming as much now as we ever did, just we're doing different channels. Um, then secondly, you've got, like, buyer sophistication, I guess is one way to put it, is just people are, they have more rarefied tastes. Like, you know, people aren't buying 30 different versions of D&D anymore. Right, they're they're going to buy the thing that they want. That that's we're talking about that niche again, right? Um, and they're going to spend hundreds of dollars on the thing that they want. And then thirdly, I think the systems are maturing. They the design space, you know, has starting to become more and more defined. It's starting to become more refined and improved. Um, you know, we're seeing you know a lot more elegant stuff these days. We're seeing you know a lot more you know shifting towards. Uh, Things that are really enhancing the fun, and and I think those are all really great things. Um, so I hope that all those are are adding into what you just said. I actually think I'm going to cut everything I said and just use your bit. <laughs> said the exact same thing, but you said it a hell of a lot better than I did. Oh well, I'm just agreeing with you. That's all I'm doing. <laughs> so there's that. Uh, okay, so that's going to bring us to the end of our show tonight. Um, the bartender's giving us the eye, and the Imperial Guard's coming around. So why don't we start with Brandon? What's your newest thing? And uh, once again, for the listeners, let them know where they can find out about you more on the interwebs. Uh, my newest thing is going to be my uh, rewrite, uh, my complete and total rewrite word for word uh, for Shadowrun 5th Edition. 
<clears throat> uh, it's going to be found probably via a link somewhere on my Twitch channel, which is twitch.tv slash impulse101. Are there going to be rules for treading water? No. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, and Shane, what is your latest thing, and where can we find out more about you on the interwebs? So you can find out uh, more about our stuff at deadlands.com or peginc.com. And our newest thing, we hope to be launching the East Texas University Kickstarter here in the next couple of weeks. We're very excited about that. That's our hold setting on, on, by the 12 to midnight game. East Texas? I, I kind of live there. Tell us more about What's this. this we want to know. Yeah, what, what is this? <laughs> yeah, so cross maybe a little Buffy the Vampire Slayer with some Supernatural and set it in East Texas at a college campus where uh, weird stuff happens all the time, and I think you've got a, a pretty good feel for it. The 12 to Midnight guys created this setting many years ago. It was originally, uh, they did some D20 adventures for it, and uh, we loved it, told them how great it was. They savaged it, and uh, they've, they've mostly, I think, been all Savage Worlds ever since. We uh, are doing the official Pinnacle version of it <clears throat> now, and that's coming out here in the Kickstarter in a couple of weeks. Now, is this uh, does does Ed Wetterman involved with this? Yep, it is Ed Wetterman and Preston Dubose uh, and, and several others, Jerry Blakemore and a few others, who worked on it and created it. And uh, they wrote the books for us, and we helped them uh, edit it and get new art and so forth. And they're gorgeous. This is kind of the antithesis of what the real East Texas is, because this sounds interesting and fun. well ed Ed wetterman is a real texan i can tell you that for sure he sure Uh, is and uh i i like ed quite a bit so i'm excited about this and i will want to know more uh we will try to have a link to that in the show notes uh and we'll see if we maybe get um why don't you do me a favor uh shane and make sure uh, ed gets in touch with us and we'll get him on the show to talk about it sounds great yeah ed and uh, preston are are great guys as are the rest of the gang and uh, i think people will be very happy with what they've done it's it's cool stuff yeah, you'll you'll chuckle when you read it. Uh, let's just hope that maybe in a couple of years I can whip out my phone and have Siri draw me a dungeon or make an NPC for me because that would be kind of cool when I'm sitting in the doctor's office. Uh, thanks again for listening to the State of the Industry for 2014. Until next time, may all your hits be crits. Oh, and one last thing. Uh, Daryl and I, super freaking grateful to have both yes. you and Brandon on board with us today. Thank you very, very much, Shane. Thanks for having us. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. And absolutely, anytime. We'll we'll have to uh, have to bring you guys back on at some point in the future. So thanks again. That was fun. <laughs> Hi, this is Nick Jaworski, and you may not realize it or probably don't care, but I edit some of the shows here on the Gamers Tavern Podcast Network. If you like podcasts but love audio editing, then I have great news for you. I have my own show titled One Degree of Separation, and you can listen to it right now and subscribe at OneDegreeWithNick.com. The show is kind of hard to describe. Each episode is basically an experiment that contains original music, stories, interviews. It's probably just best if I quickly show you some recent episodes. Try to see what you had. <laughs> if you had anything interesting for me. Well, uh, have you ever, ever waterboarded somebody? It was actually a story of Abraham Lincoln, a very superstitious man, seeing his own doppelganger multiple times over a couple of nights. When looking in the mirror, he saw two faces, his normal face and then a pale, ghostly one that that worried him. I have to get back to editing right now, but you should go check out all of that and more at OneDegreeWithNick.com. Thanks.